Hello and welcome to this week's Doxit podcast, coming to you on Sunday the 12th of July 2020. My name's Fiona Stewart. Yes, and I'm Philip Nitschke. And together we're the co-authors of the Peaceful Pill Handbook series, which we now publish in five languages. And if you're interested, you can find more information at peacefulpill.com. Now, the topic of this week's podcast is on the medicalization of death and dying. And in particular, we're drawing on a recent article, a 2019 article, by cultural anthropologist Anita Hannick from Brandeis University in the US, and an article that she's written called Authorizing Death, Medical Aid in Dying and the Morality of Suicide. So stay with us. It's an interesting topic for sure. Okay, Philip, what is it that most pisses you off about suicide? Oh, look, I've watched this debate about assisting a suicide and medical involvement in assisted suicide for the past 20 years. And I've watched how it's being redefined as people seem to recoil from the use of the word. I want to reclaim the term suicide. I want to open it up and discuss it frankly. What we're talking about when we help people to die is helping them to suicide. And we shouldn't be trying to use other expressions to hide from from that topic. I mean, what's been, I guess, interesting to me is that there's a concerted push, and it has there has been for the past 20 years, to separate off the medicalization of death when it involves the um, cooperation and the sanction of the medical profession of a doctor from, so, from suicide as being something which is inherently socially deviant. I mean, in, the, in 2017, for example, the American Association of Suicidology, the study of suicide, Um, tried to write and tried to argue that conceptually, medically and legally different phenomenon, suicide and physician-assisted suicide or medical aid in dying or voluntary-assisted dying, any of those terms. And even this year's, like this month's editorial in the NTVG journal, which is the journal of the Dutch Medical Association, their opening line just about is that there's suicide and then there's euthanasia in the Netherlands, as though somehow these two things are totally different. Are are they different? Well, I don't think they're different at all, and I think we should just be quite open about this fact. Trying to conceptualise assistance in dying, that is medical assistance in dying and the various strategies being employed around the world to help people die, usually in the context of terminal illnesses, something different from assisting a suicide I think is quite bizarre. It's as if we're trying to define suicide as something which is alien and something we need to recoil well, from. Well, sui- the suicide death is intrinsically the bad death, inverted commas, isn't it? And I guess what they're trying to do using medicine or within the medical model is saying that a voluntary assisted death is a good death. So you've got suicide, bad, ugly, dangerous, gory. Voluntary assisted death, nice, calm, socially acceptable. Yes, yeah, so they're try to, trying to say that so suicide is socially deviant behaviour and is never normal. We have trying to reclaim, at least at exit, trying to reclaim the idea of rational suicide as a perfectly normal uh, practice and something that people should look at quite openly. And have been arguing that, arguing that way for me, for many years, claiming that the terminology is critical and we have to try and get rid of the word suicide. I've not agreed to, with that, and I still don't agree with it. I think we should re- reclaim the term now. I think it's possible. I think the idea of rational suicide makes sense. I think if it's explained carefully. Uh, we can get around this idea, which is current currently, that anyone who tries to end their own lives, that is to suicide, is somehow socially deviant, is sick, needs help, usually from a psychiatrist. What is one of the up to 70% of people who suicide because they're 
got depression because it's linked to mental illness. This idea, trying to redefine people or trying to define that everyone who takes this step is so uh, troubled by some malady that they're taking this unnatural act. In other words, they're sick people and they need help from doctors. Whereas the person who's terminally ill and gets help under the pieces of legislation that have come in around the world, those people are totally normal. They've got a terminal illness and they take the acceptable road of going off to their doctor and say, please, doctor, can I have help to die? That's okay. That's not socially deviant. But the person who just decides because they're used to running their own life that now's the time to die and perhaps for reasons that don't involve terminal illness, well, they're still terminally deviant people who need to be subjected to, probably compulsorily, psychiatric help. But to some degree, I mean, we're not guilty of this ourselves, but we do see it because people who come along to exit workshops, whether they're online, which they are now, or in the olden days, pre-COVID, when they were face-to-face, I mean, a lot of people are concerned a, that their death doesn't look like a suicide. And so there's a whole stigma associated with what a suicide death looks like. And it sounds like it in, inevitably in your imagination it involves blood. And some people are very concerned about having suicide on their death certificate. And I guess, I mean, to their credit, one of the things I actually like about Switzerland is that the cause of death is never on one's death certificate. So how do we go about reclaiming suicide when people are worried about having it on their death certificate and also concerned that their death doesn't look like one? Well, I mean, there's a couple of issues going on here. You're right about people coming to our workshops and making it quite clear. And they've got, there's several reasons why they may not wish to have an association with suicide. They're, in many cases, just reflecting uh, society's disdain for the idea of suicide and the idea they say, I personally don't mind the thought of doing it myself, suiciding, but I know that there's a stigma associated with that and I'd rather avoid having that happen. So sometimes people will say in very practical ways, I'm going to end my own life, it will be suicide, but I don't want anyone to know. So what method can I use so that it won't be revealed that this is a suicide? I mean, other times there's concerns about perhaps more pragmatic concerns such as will it affect my life insurance if it's a suicide? other issues that perhaps drive people... I don't to... want to be known as Aunt Betty who suicided. I don't want to be known as the uh, the ageing aunt in the family who, who suicided. So rather than have that on the death certificate, I'd go to some lengths to avoid it. So I think in some ways what our members are doing is simply reflecting in the common and understood societal... Uh, revulsion at the idea of suicide. And that's, of course, being played up and up and up by our governmental structures that are working towards, and we hear it every day now, zero suicide rates. This is what the society's goal is, to cut suicide rates to zero. And that, of course, flies in the face of our concept that every person has the right to end their life at any time. We would argue at any time for whatever reason. So historically, I mean, suicide has been an act in relatively recent history, the last few centuries, I guess, has been an act that's been been governed by religion. And so the whole conceptualisation of suicide as a sin came about. And then in the last 100, 150, 200 years, suicide has moved into the domain or rather been colonised by the medical profession in a bit the same way, I guess, as childbirth. Yeah, since the Enlightenment... (laughs) The Enlightenment, uh, this idea that it's actually a, uh, it's not any, it's not a sin as such, 
it's a, uh, a medical problem that needs to be addressed by medical therapy and treatment. So the medical profession has effectively taken over uh, what had hitherto been seen as, uh, uh, if you like, uh, a crime against religion. And of course, once they become the experts, that is the doctors, they can start setting up the standards and parameters under which it can be controlled. And that's the situation we find ourselves in now. Anyone who suicides is considered to be a person who's got some form of perhaps undiagnosed med- medical malady. And it flies in the face of the idea of people, as we would argue, wanting to see their life as something that they can dispose of at any time, should that be their wish. So regardless of whether we agree to disagree that suicide and voluntary assisted dying are one and the same things, I mean, one offshoot or upshoot of what the conceptualisation of suicide as a medical procedure, so voluntary assisted death has been, has been for society to understand that hasten death choice as as a rational one. It's kind of a way in which suicide, by another name, gets presented to the world as palatable and as socially acceptable. Yeah, so we've got the people who end their lives, those the people who suicide as being irrational and sick, and those who adopt uh, or opt for medical-assisted suicide under the various legislative regimes coming in around the world as rational and acting in accordance with societal norms. And this is one of the points that Anita Hannig makes, is that aid in dying um, is a term which reinforces the whole dying process as a medical procedure because the aid under law, must necessarily come from a doctor. Yes, and of course she also goes on, because when I had a quick look at this paper, goes on to say that it's very clearly defined and you have to fit the certain prerequisites and requirements of the legislative or medical environment. So provided you fit the picture, satisfy the requirements, uh, then it's a normal process. But if you move slightly outside of that, you immediately receive societal condemnation as a suicidee. And that idea of trying to define black and white, in and out, and dividing into two groups, irrational and irrational, I think is what we're seeing going on now. This idea that some are okay, but others have to be stopped at all costs. And this is a point she brings to the fore in her argument, in that it is the state who essentially gets to determine who gets to die well. Yeah, it is the state who defines it. And, the, and a, a, a suicidee, a person who goes off and suicides, the so-called defined irrational act is effectively, I suppose, giving the finger to the state. So the way in which the state regulates the death is because the death must take place within the law and the law and medicine work hand in hand to proscribe how you get to qualify how you get to die, how you get the lethal drugs, whether your depression, if you have it, is socially acceptable or clinically acceptable depression or if you've overstepped the mark and you need the degree to which you need to be further assessed by mechanisms of the state to have the death that you want, not to mention the predicated factor that you need to be terminally ill. I mean, one of the most powerful points that Anita Hennig makes is that the patient ceases to be the primary actor in the, the, the road, the journey towards their own death. Yeah, so it, it sort of makes a bit of a farce of this idea that these laws that are coming in are 
allowing a person to get help to die are empowering the patient. This idea that somehow or other you get the right to choose when to die is not true. What you do, as we've been saying this a bit, is get the right only to ask the question. The conditions under which that assistance will be provided and that end-of-life act uh, effectively sanctioned by the state will be determined entirely by the state or its administrating group that is the medical profession and that's a far cry from the idea of a person having an abs- having a control and right to be able to determine when they divest themselves of their life that is suicide i mean but it's not in some ways it's it's not just doctors it's the psychiatrists it's the prescribing pharmacists who must dispense and fulfill fulfill the script for the lethal drug um, if you're dying in a hospice, it's the hospice staff who are going to make it happen. It's the volunteers of that hospice and it's the family members. I mean, you think about the stakeholders who have been argued to to be stakeholders in a person's death, then you can see that this responsibility for the death, well, it's become a responsibility for all these different organisations, institutions, mechanisms of the state rather than just the person themselves. So you're never going to die alone under a voluntary-assisted dying law. <laughs> no. Alone. I don't know, alone or autonomously, I guess. Autonomously, yeah. I think it comes. it's interesting to consider situations where you perhaps see two people who want to die together, bringing up some of the aspects you've been describing. For example, in the case of Don and Iris Flounders, you had one person who was terminally ill, uh, and deciding that now is the time to die and being able, one would have thought, to be able to qualify. This was a while back and there was no law in Victoria at the time, but had it been today, he would have qualified for the Victorian law as a person suffering from mesothelioma, the asbestos cancer, to get help to die. But his wife wanted to die with him because she'd been with him for 60 years and when he died, she wanted to die too. Now, she, of course... Uh, was a person who wouldn't qualify because she wasn't sick. She wouldn't have satisfied all of those criteria that legislative models had brought in, and so she would have had to just sit by and watch while Don, her husband, got the help that he wanted from the medical profession. He fitted into the standard. She wouldn't have. So they did, in in effect, what the only choice they had anyway was to go off and both suicided together, which it seems to me to be an entirely rational approach to the uh, problem they were presented with. So once a person's made the decision that they want to end their life, do you think their autonomy can ever be preserved under a state-sanctioned right-to-die law? No, I don't think so. I think that it's it's, it's inconceivable. The, the passage of these laws and the way that they've been construed, we talk about them as being medical laws, but for, what they try to do is to codify the conditions under which you will satisfy the requirements of the state. And by codifying these conditions, I mean you've got to comply with them if you're wanting to get the assistance you need. And to do that, that means you're losing your own autonomy. So this idea that you're kind of going to come along and say, now's the time to die, is not the way it works. What happens is that you decide now's the time to die, and then you go off and try and satisfy the requirements of the state. You've handed over responsibility and authority to this other body, the state, and they maintain total control. Do you think there is a parallel with the abortion argument? The parallel I see with the abortion argument is the way that 
ever since I did my medical course, one of the things that used to worry me so much was it seemed to me, if we look at the history of medicine, we see area after area where the medical profession has decided that it should have a pivotal role. Well, interesting you should say that because, I mean, Anita Hannig concludes her article with throwaway lines, something I've never seen before, that medicine is a form of biopolitical governance. Yeah, but that sums it up pretty well, biopolitical governance. In fact, that they're so willing to... I suppose, exercise this authority and take over this control and set themselves up as the gatekeepers of various what we might describe as normal human endeavours, I think is a worrying characteristic of the profession. One of the things that most worried me about joining this profession was I saw myself as joining a profession which, in a sense, was taking control of areas where many would argue it really has no, has no role. It should not be putting itself into this pivotal, deciding, decision-making position, holding the keys to the gate, shall we say, over all sorts of activities which would be described or could be described as normal human endeavours. What did you learn about how to about helping people to die at medical school? Yes, well, I predated the uh, I predated the uh, topic in some ways. I don't think at Sydney University Medical School I even mentioned the word euthanasia once during my training. So I missed out. I'd be interesting to know what they're saying. Well, we do know what they're saying now because I speak quite often to medical to groups of medical students and they're very much fed this line that there are laws coming in around the world which will give them the position, that is doctors, put them in the position of deciding whether or not a person is eligible. They will defend this by saying we're trying to work out whether the person has got a psychiatric illness or not. In other words, trying to screen out those that are irrational. But what it really comes down to is making sure that the person who wants help to die is going to fit the model which allows them to be compatible with the state. Now, I want to play devil's advocate here for a minute um, because one of the things that assisted death is lauded for is the fact that it allows patients to mend bridges with their families and to choose how, when and where they will die. And this rebuilding of family relationships and closure is something that you read about quite often. So that's what you get when you have a a state-sanctioned voluntary assisted death as opposed to suicide. Well, you certainly do. Uh, I suppose that is the argument that you do have the opportunity to speak openly and, of course, the stigma of suicide and the problems associated with uh, that act mean that it's difficult for a person who says now is the time I'm now going to go on suicide for them to have an open discussion with their family. It's also made even more of a problem because of the legislation that surrounds it. Suicide is not a crime, and we say that a lot. You can go off and end your own life at any time and not break any law at all. However, anyone who might assist you, and that's where it starts to get very murky because the family members you want to talk to about your plan to end your life might find themselves in some ways associated or involved in or suggested at least they may be in breach of this law that because even they because they know of your plans that they found themselves accused of assisting you. And this is something you get asked all the time, can I sit with my wife or my husband or whoever? Yeah, when they, they drink their Nembutel. They say that over and I mean, they say, well, the law says you can't assist. And they say, but I'm not going to assist. I know what they're planning to do and I support what they want to do. But I don't want to be found to have broken some law by assisting them. So what I end up saying is, look, be there by all means, but perhaps it's a good idea to say that you weren't when the uh, inevitable interest by the authorities takes place when the person's dead. In other words... Perhaps you should say you were in the other room and you came back in and found that your husband had drank the Nembutel or switched on the nitrogen and used an exit bag. Either way, 
it's probably a good idea not to say that you're in the room, even though you didn't have anything to do with actual assistance, because that argument still exists out there that maybe by your mere presence, you are providing some tacit assistance in some ways, if you like, almost psychological assistance for the person taking this this act which is considered to be so antisocial. And then I guess in countries like France, there's a complicating factor that if you are aware of someone's intention to harm themselves, to kill themselves, however peacefully, you have a duty of care to stop them, to intervene. Yeah, this idea of duty of care, that you have some obligation to try and stop a person from harming themselves, which does, of course, fly in the face of uh, acts of autonomy. If a person is going out there to drink their Nembutel and you race over the room and grab it from their hand and throw it out the window, many would or could argue that as far as law is concerned that that's an act of assault. So, I mean, there is uh, there is a certain amount of murkiness in the legislation that surrounds this and it differs from country to country. But nevertheless, we are fronted in general terms by most countries having laws that strongly preclude any assistance for a person taking the antisocial step of suicide. So what Exodus is trying to do is reclaim the term, reclaim suicide, reclaim rational suicide and see it as a normal process, something that, if not liked, certainly understood. And that takes me back to the statement by Thomas Zass that suicide is a fundamental human right and it's one that the state has no moral right to interfere with. And I totally subscribe to that view. I want to turn attention now to an article written a few years back by the Dutch journalist Henk Blanken in The Guardian. Uh, Henk has had uh, Parkinson's disease. He was diagnosed when he was about 51, and that's about 10 years ago now, I think. In this article, he writes that doctors have a monopoly, and this is some degree why the patient will never be in control. He, he laments in this article, being a critical eye Dutch journalist, he says, the right to die has been discussed for now so long in the Netherlands that we've come to believe we each have the right to die when we want. But when push comes to shove, the patient is not the one who decides on their euthanasia. It is the doctor who decides and no one else. Yes, when I, read, when I first read that article by Hank Blanken, which I think appeared in The Guardian, it was something which I thought was, it was well long overdue that it was stated so clearly and had people think that the Dutch, many people internationally at least, think the Dutch law is so loose and so out of control that the Dutch are in fact some sort of uh, international cot case with their rather liberal attitudes to end-of-life issues. But what Hank was saying is, no, that's not the case. Here in Holland, like everywhere else that's introduced medicalised laws, the patient, him, the individual is not the one in control. The person who's in control is the doctor. And and don't be under any illusion about this. Don't get the idea you've got a right to die. And this is what we say over and over. These are beg and grovel laws. They're beg and grovel laws in the Netherlands, just as they are in every other country, except perhaps Switzerland. Beg and grovel. You can ask the question, if you beg well and you grovel enough, maybe the doctors will say yes, but don't get this idea that you're the one in control. So when we're all celebrating the passage of pieces of legislation around the world which allow a person to get lawful help from a doctor to die, don't go down this path of thinking that's it because now we have achieved this fundamental right. You haven't. You've achieved only the right to ask a question. But if we drill down into this... um tension I guess a little bit more I mean Henk is Henk Blanken is he's pointing out the schism between what the law allows and what the medic profession is prepared to do and I guess it's it's in a lot of 
the mainstream media reporting in the Netherlands that, and also surveys that doctors are very hesitant, for example, to help people with advanced dementia to die, even though Dutch law allows for it. Yeah, the dementia argument is a is a interesting issue, and it's one that really we need to spend some time on. Because but it, it brings to the fore this tension, doesn't it? That even though the state is empowering the medical profession and trying to steer them in one direction, that the sheer power of the medical profession to decide what they want to be involved with and what they won't be involved with is another feature of state-sanctioned power that disempowers the person in the street. Yeah, I guess the the, the at the at the dementia coalface, you see that 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 aspect played out pretty well, and it's pretty clear there that the final decision is going to be made by the doctor, even though the state gives them the permission and authority to take this step. So Blinken is acutely aware of this, and for his own end-of-life plans with his progressively worsening Parkinson's, he's become well aware that he can't rely on a doctor, and he's predicating this upon the fact that dementia is often a side effect, a symptom of Parkinson's disease. So he's very aware that he cannot rely on a doctor. So he's written in this article actually about asking his wife to make the decision for him when he's no longer able to make the decision of when's the right time to die and how to die. And I just want to read you a little bit from his article. And I quote, The right to die, I say, must be the right to allow another person, not a doctor, but a loved one, to make the decision about ending the ending of your life. That is a very big deal. If only because it is forbidden by law. That law must be changed, but that will take many years. I go on, but if you can see my pain, if you can feel my fear, if you think that I have become a sad leftover of a human being, then can you put that pill in my porridge? She, his wife, she finds it an impossible thought. How could anyone ask such a thing? You can say no, and then what? Then I'll have to look for someone else. That is my only wish, that I am the one who decides who is to make the decision. That thought is just as painful and impossible as the one before. I try to calm her down. It will be your decision when I die, whatever that may be. Well, if that's your choice, she says. Blossom drifts softly to her lap. She will help me, she says, as she has always done. No matter what, she says. I will take care of you until your last breath. Is this a solution to getting around well, doctor control, the doctor's control, the doctor's monopoly over your death? It's one solution and it's not a bad one. And certainly it takes it out of the hands of the doctors. Of course, what he's doing to his wife, though, is putting her into an invidious legal position. Uh, it's a crime in the Netherlands or in any most countries to assist a suicide. The penalties can be savage. So it's one thing to say, I want her to do it. But what he's really asking, and I often say that to people when I hold workshops. I said, how many people do you know prepared to spend 10 years in prison to help you? And people that come with the with the strongest of relationships, couples that have been together for 50 years, it's a big ask to ask someone to say, I want you to take, to do something which could result in you spending a decade in prison. That's a big ask. Uh, I like the idea of Hanks that it gets it out of the hands of the medical profession, but to dump that onto his wife is a lot. I think there are other solutions to this, and we're going to be talking about it in future podcasts, about ways to get around this problem of taking the step when you can't actually do it yourself. But let's not spend too much time on this idea because most people can end their own lives 
themselves. They don't need help. They just need to know what it is and they need to have access to the best drugs. And of course, is where the state goes out of its way to frustrate anybody's plans because it's damn difficult to get what you need. That is the best drugs. So in wrapping up, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, we've got the the social deviance of suicide as it's currently constituted in debate and thought about, even though Exit International is trying to do our darndest to reclaim the term as a and give it a more positive meaning. And then we're stuck the other place we're stuck with stuck with is VAD, voluntary assisted dying laws. Where and I get back to Hannig's point, Anita Hannig's point here is that there's this dialectic that is not going away between authorship and authorization. So on the one hand, it's the person who, any one of us who wants to have control about how we how our lives come to an end, and then the authorization that is required under laws to enable us to get what we want. Yes, we've got a problem as you've correctly articulated look there's very i see not much light on the horizon i must say i'm pretty bleak about this i read for example just the other day about the panic over statistics published about elderly suicides often these are people that end their own lives elderly people in the ages of 70 and 80 often in the context of serious illness maybe not terminal but certainly suffering and their general reaction to these figures when published was that this is dreadful We've got to do something about making these older people want to live. In other words, we've got to try and do something about this damn embarrassing statistic of elderly suicide. When I thought, well, no, this is a statistic we should be proud of. Elderly suicide, the numbers of people that are suiciding when elderly show that they have control, show that they're able to take autonomous decisions and act upon them successfully and that's something we should be pleased with when I tried to actually say it was seen as something that was a dreadful thing to say you almost cannot support the concept of rational suicide what's the name of that wonderful film with the old lady who opts out with the the young lover Harold and Maud Maud. how could I forget it Harold and Maud I mean she's a prime example of someone planning for her death opting out he, he, as a young person, doesn't get it. He cannot understand it. And she just says, well, it's been like that. I've had this plan for so long. And 80 is the time. Because we had our own Harold and Maud with uh, Lisette Nigo, who came along and said, 80 is the time to die. And that's what I'm going to do. And everyone said, oh, my God, she's not. She can't be rational. But by hell, she was rational. Let's track down Harold, Harold and Maud and have a watch of it. It's years since we've watched that film can't believe I forgot the name of it. Okay, that's it for this week, folks. Next podcast, we're going to be talking about the N-word. <laughs> that's a line out of Philip's Dicing with Dr. Death comedy show. We're going to be talking Nembutel in the next podcast. Um, if you would like to send us a voice memo, you can do that from uh, Anchor or Spotify and the Exit International website. You can get hold of this podcast for free at any of the places where you get your podcasts. And if in doubt, go to peacefulpill.com, click on podcasts, and there we are. So, hope you've enjoyed it. Hope we haven't bored you to death, but it's a it's um, a challenging issue to try and talk about and make sense about on the fly. Um, in some regards, I think 
I'm sure that there are going to be readers who, who want to have a look at Anita Hennig's article, and we'll put a link to that. It's called Authorising Death, Medical Aid in Dying, and the Morality of Suicide, and it was published in 2019 in Cultural Anthropology. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye for now. <laughs>